Um, this morning we go back to the, our study in 1 Timothy. And uh, kind of a side note here, as I was preparing for teaching this task, this text, uh, Dylan and I divided up in, in two parts, and I would preach the first part, and he would preach the second one. As I kept studying, I'm like, boy, there is too much here. We've got to break this down now in three parts, and maybe we'll go even in four. Um, and, and it's a very important subject, God's design for elders. So if you have... Um, there are some notes there in the back that you can follow with the outline, and there's questions in the back there that you can apply to yourself later. And so this is a very important subject for our church, particularly now that we're in a moment of transition uh, with a new vocational elder coming into, into our team. And we want to keep praying for that and, and give you guidance as you examine that man, and, and you continue to examine us. So the ministry effectiveness of this church, or of any church for that matter, it's largely a reflection of its leaders. The principle of Hosea 4.9, and mind you, this is Old Covenant, um, they were directed by priests, it says that it will be like people, like priests. It is still true today. People do not normally rise above the level of their leaders. So important it is that those who lead the church be highly qualified spiritually, that the detailed list of these specific qualifications is given twice in Paul's letter. Both here in First Timothy and in Titus, we have this... Um, this teaching. So, um, and I just want to give the caveat here. We're not trying to say that we as elders are perfect and, you know, there's everything that we do you should imitate. Um, I, I can say with Paul, imitate me in what I am imitating Christ. So, um, the, with really humility and trembling, I come to this text because I realize the high standard that God has for his servants. I relied heavily on MacArthur's commentary, so pardon me if some of the words that I say here, you might listen. Uh, you know, I'm quoting him. <laughs> so, um, because all the other commentaries that I came across, they were either too broad with this passage or too controversial. So my, my hope and prayer for you is that you won't tune down this message because it speaks of elders, okay? I believe in a dual purpose for you as a church to take this to heart. First, because we as elders are accountable to you. So you need to be looking at our lives and examining, does Dylan's life, does Eric's life, and then my, my own life matches this standard that the Lord has? So we keep us accountable. We're supposed to be above reproach, not non-reproachable. And second, because you are held to the same standards that God has for his leaders. If we're supposed to serve as examples, then this is an expectation that God has for you as a church as well. 
apart from being able to teach and a sense of ministerial calling, all of us should be living out these character qualities that are designed by God for elders in the church. Uh, MacArthur says, there is an inseparable link between the character of a church and the quality of its leadership. Leaders must set a good example for the church to follow. Our Lord said in Luke 6.40, a pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone, after he has been fully trained, will be like his teacher. What a, uh, a scary verse for me. Because if I am teaching you, and your life is going to match mine and our lives here, there is a great responsibility laid on our shoulders. Paul urged the Corinthians, be imitators of me. To the Philippians, he wrote, the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. So let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 7, even though we're only going to touch verse 1 and 2 today. So 1 Timothy chapter 3, and starting on verse 1, it says, It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of an overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer, then, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, Temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle and peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And now a new com and, and not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into the reproach and the snare of the devil. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we come before you with humility of hearts. Um, you have chosen imperfect man to carry out this wonderful task of shepherding your people. And pray, Lord, that as we approach this text, you will convict us and, um, and even make us more prayerful for those in leadership. Lord, we are thankful for your instructions that you didn't leave us without help on trying to discern these things in a world that has so corrupted the spiritual leadership. Pray that you encourage us and even inform our prayers. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so a little bit of a background here. Uh, the, the church at Ephesus, you will remember, had been blessed with a leadership of the highest caliber when they first started. In Acts chapter 20... It was Paul that founded this church and ministered there for three years. That's one of the longest ministries that Paul had. And during that time, he trained a core of godly leaders to lead the church after he left. 
As he foresaw, however, false leaders arose after his departure from Ephesus. And after his release from his first Roman imprisonment, Paul returned to Ephesus and dealt with two prominent ones. So leaving with Tim, leaving Timothy to deal with the rest and the other shoes of the church, he set out for Macedonia. We read it in verse one, uh, chapter one, verse three. So not long afterward that Paul left the church in Ephesus, um, and he wrote this letter to Timothy. So he left Timothy in charge of that church and to set things straight. All right. Remember the, the, the theme of our passage uh, of, our, of our letter here is 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, that, but in case I'm delayed, I write so you know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. So this is a, a letter to tell us how do we do church? How do we do church God's way? And we have seen in chapter 2 some instructions already regarding how our men ought to behave and then how our women ought to behave. And now we have a chapter on leadership. How should they behave? How the elders should behave and how the deacons should behave. Choosing the right elders was to be done by measuring men against a divinely inspired checklist of qualifications. Um, one of the things that made our, you know, trying to describe the, the job <laughs> um, for uh, our new vocational elder, it, it, was, it was easy to an extent because it is all here. We don't need to come up with qualifications. The Lord has already revealed it to us in his word. He places God's standards against what the Ephesians had allowed the leadership to degenerate into. You remember that some of the leaders, uh, and I think Dylan preached about this, some of the leaders were teaching false doctrine, turning aside to fruitless discussions. They misused the law and misunderstood the gospel. Others were guilty of sin and needed a public rebuke. And chapter 5, verse 20 infers that those who continue in sin, and he's speaking on the context of leadership, rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. So the, the question really is, if the elders ought to be held accountable, it's because our sin will influence the church as well. So it's a fearful thing. All the qualifications he lists are spiritual virtues, character traits that mark godly teachers and leaders. Uh, he says nothing about the duties of elders here in this text. It doesn't tell what we do as elders. But it is concerned only with their spirituality, morality, and virtue as the necess necessary foundation to the calling. The duties were clear. The qualifications need to be clarified. All who serve as overseers and elders in the church must measure up to this standard or face public discipline, according to chapter 5. So let us consider then what is not on this list and what it is on these lists. First, several things aren't on this list. And, and 
I think it even helped us to, to decide what direction we we're going on the hiring of a new vocational elder. Uh, but you will notice here that it's not, it doesn't talk about age. An older man should not automatically become elders, and a young man should not automatically be disqualified. There is a, a prerequisite on, on having someone being new to the faith, but as far as age goes, there's no uh, specifics in here. The, the, even the word elder uh, is referring more to the experience with the Lord than age itself. And you also notice here that it's not talking about business success. Success in the world doesn't necessarily equate with leadership in the church. And if I can say something, what we see in the churches, uh, and even good churches, is the elders are basically businessmen. They're, they have influence, they have money, they have influence in the church, and they get to take the shots. But they don't teach. They don't shepherd the people. They are basically administrators of, of the household. Yes, there is an element of administration that we all have to, to do, but that is not a qualification for a person to be successful. It, it does not talk about likability. That is not simply a group of men that everyone likes. Oh, he is a very uh, handsome person. They are... Uh, a very um, uh, just gregarious character. They had dro draw people to themselves. That's not what the qualifications is in here. So what it is then that is this text is all about? So before discussing the qualifications against which all pastors are to be measured, however, Paul gives some helpful insight into the call to spiritual leadership. This opening verse is suggests three facets related to the office of an overseer. And I have, this is our outline here. It is an important office. It is a compelling office. And then it's an excellent and yet arduous office. This is verse one. And verse two, we'll close with the, just the, the introduction to that, which portrays the office with essential requirements. All right, so let's get it started on uh, this first point here, an important office. In verse, chapter 3, verse 1 says, it is a trustworthy statement. That expression, this phrase, trustworthy statement, is unique to the pastoral epistles, appearing five times. Each time this expression appears, it introduces a basic truth of great importance and familiarity among the believers. When Paul was saying, this is a trustworthy statement, the congregation was already tuned in that this is something important. And this is something that we all should know. Trustworthy statement is an obvious, self-evident truth that doesn't need any proof. While trustworthy statement in this passage is about the issue of the call to ministry, the others refer to doctrinal matters and the other four times that it appears in the pastoral letters. Including this truth with those essential elements of Christian dogma shows the importance placed on the role of leadership by early church 
It was and it still is a serious and sacred trust. Uh, as Dr. MacArthur says, in Paul's day, the pastorate was not entered into lightly. Today, people enter the ministry for a variety of reasons. Not all of them commendable. Some are in it for the money. Others are in for the security or the prestige or respect or the privilege of working with Christians and other unacceptable motivations. In the early church, however, conditions were very different. There was little money to be made since the churches were poor and few Christians were rich. The ministry was not a position of prestige in society. And I think to some extent, <laughs> today still is. I do remember the transition from being a pharmacist and then going to ministry. That was a, a, a very different um, scenario that I was diving in. Well, since Christians and especially preachers were despised outcasts, and since the church was a fragment target of persecution, those in leadership roles risked their lives. The record of the developing church constantly affirms the importance of his spiritual leadership. End of quote. I, I remember being in seminary and seeing some guys that I, I, I was just confused. What are you doing here? You have no interest in, in knowing more and growing, or you have no interest in people. I mean, you're going to be working with people. What? <laughs> so I don't know what motivation. And, and soon enough, uh, after the first year, the you know this hard program, uh, people start dropping out because it, it, it tested them. I think of First Peter chapter five. How about we turn there? First Peter five. Uh, Peter, also an elder. an apostle and an elder, he, he kind of tries to dissuade of people going into ministry with the wrong motivations. He says, First uh, Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder, so I'm one of you, he's saying, and witness in the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also, of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, not as yet lording, as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. It, it is not about control. It is not about power. Since godly leaders have always been the backbone of the church, it is essential that they be qualified. In an unsuccessful church, the issue is all too often not the poor programs or uncommitted people, but standard leadership, substandard leadership. Godly leaders are not produced by Bible colleges or seminaries. They merely give them the tools with which to work with. Nor do pulpit committees or ordination councils make men fit for the ministry. They merely have the responsibility to recognize those who already are. 
So even in ordination, and you guys witnessed one this year, um, if the Lord wills to bring someone that is not ordained yet, he will have to be examined and go through this process. But that doesn't make him an elder. The, what God has called him is just being confirmed by those committees or examination boards, whatever you want to call them. Only the Holy Spirit can produce a true spiritual leader. When Saul failed, and I'm going to make some reference here to 1 Samuel because we've been there for a while. When Saul failed to be a godly king over Israel, God sought out David. And here's how God described David in 1 Samuel 13, 14. A man after his own heart. A man of integrity, a man of holiness. Not perfect, but a man that turns to God. That is the kind of man God seeks to lead his redeemed people. The call to lead the church is so important that only the noblest need to apply. Need apply. Um, if you read the second half here, it says, if any man aspires to the office of an overseer. So this is saying that church leadership is not for everyone. It is open to anyone interested, but there is a limitation. He uses there any man, and uh, this is how our translation uh, brings it out. An essential requirement for a church leader is that he be a man. The indefinite pronoun uh, tes in Greek, translated as any, should be taken at here as masculine in agreement with the masculine form of the adjective, adjectives in verses 2 through 6. So an overseer, that is a, a male pronoun, uh, a male um, noun. The husband of one wife, that is also uh, a male indication. Also a woman could hardly be a one-woman man. Nor did the women in that day had households. Paul here applies the truth taught in chapter 2, verse 15 through uh, 11 through 15. Uh, as Michael preached, women were not to be leaders in the church. We just studied that. They, now, they have a vitally important role in the church, in the home, and in society. But that role, however, does not include leadership over God's people. So it is a wonderful calling. It's an important calling, but it's a limited calling. Now we're going to move on here to the second half of verse 1. Um, it is a compelling office, a compelling office. And it says... If any man aspires to the office of overseer, the, the word aspires or desires implying that it's something that people want to do. It is something that people desire to do. Those who seek the office of an overseer must have a spirit-given, compelling desire for it. The word for aspires is a rare word appealing only three times in the New Testament. One more time in First Timothy and another in Hebrews 11 in the New Testament. So it means to reach out after or to stretch out oneself to grasp something. 
Some have translated as, if someone sets his heart on it, he's set on this, he's, he's um, seeking this pursuit. Here it describes someone who is taking steps to become an overseer. And then the word desire, it's a, it's a strong word actually in, in Greek and used in both in a negative sense and positive sense. But it, it means a passionate compulsion, someone who has a passionate compulsion. In the context, for good rather than for evil, in contrast with the first word, this verb refers to the inward feeling of desire. Taken together, these two terms describe that the man who out, outwardly pursues the ministry because of a driven compulsion on the inside. Interestingly, Paul does not mention a divine call to the ministry as a requirement here, but instead he speaks of an aspiration or desire. Many have put too much emphasis on this decisive sense of internal calling, but there is nothing mystical about this calling. Um, some men seek a spiritual oversight in the church because they, they respect having encouraged them to do so. Others pursued it because they decided the ministry is their best option. They love the Lord and His church, so they attend Bible college or seminary to prepare for service. And because they are not driven by an internal passion for the ministry, however, it become a mere academic exercise for them. And it is those examples that I, I, I gave you of, of guys that didn't have this internal desire, or, or there were some that said, oh, I, I felt a calling in my heart, the Lord calling me to the ministry. And I would ask, so uh, what, is, what is your service like in the church? Well, I don't do anything. Uh, evangelism? Nope. Um, discipleship? Well, I'm not, I, I really, no. Um, you know, what, where is this calling coming from? How much time do you spend studying scripture? So we, we need this guidance so that we're not misguided by this mystical view of what this, college, this calling is. The Lord, the, the love, they love the Lord and his church, so that's why they, they pursue it. On the other hand, some have a great passion for the ministry, but they lack the self-control and devotion to priorities to, for preparation. There were many guys that, uh, they, they were great, they have a heart for people, but they could not exercise self-discipline at all. And unfortunately, they dropped out. They can't seem to, the, to get their lives together, disi um, lives disciplined enough to get on track to achieve their desire. The man truly called to the ministry is marked both by an inward consumption passion, consuming passion, and a disciplined outward pursuit. For him, the ministry is not the best option, it is the only option. There's nothing else he could do with his life that would fulfill him. In the same way, he works diligently to prepare himself to be qualified for service. While some have called later in life, have been called later in life, from that point on, nothing else will do for them. So we, we think about the material that we're going with our man, the men of grace and granite, and one of the lectures that we had here was the raw materials. And, and, and this is really what the Lord is saying here. We're not seeking out perfect people. 
We're taking these raw materials to, to grow them into godly leaders. Although some seek the office of an overseer for the wrong motives, such as money or power or prestige, becoming a local overseer is not about promoting oneself's interests or seeking power. It's about an individual wanting to serve the congregation by using those particular gifts and qualities which the Lord has given him. I haven't put there on your notes, but turn to Ephesians chapter 4. There is an implied giftedness that comes with this calling, so to speak, to this office. Ephesians chapter 4, verse, starting in verse 11, says that the Lord Jesus, is the context there from the previous verses, he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as what? Pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, for, to the building up of the body of Christ. So um, elders are a gift to the church, to grow the church, to help to grow us. But behind the desire to be an overseer should lie an awakening and a leading from the Lord. But this desire on the part of an individual must be confirmed by the church on the visible evidence of certain qualities which the apostle is about to describe. The true motive for seeking ministry was described by this um, scholar Patrick Fairbairn. He says, the seeking here intending, intended must be of the proper kind, not of prompting of a carnal ambition, but the aspiration of a heart which has itself experienced the grace of God and which longs to see others coming to participate in this heavenly gift. He wants to equip the church. He wants to build them up. That's his driving force. It is not the office the truly called seek, but the work itself. Simply put, ambition for office corrupts. The desire for service purifies. Our Lord described the true character of spiritual service in Mark chapter 10. Let's turn there, Mark 10. Um, and we're looking at verses 42 through 44. So, the Lord Jesus said, calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercise authority over them? But it's not the way, this way among you. But whoever wishes, and kind of like the similar phraseology, whoever wishes, do you want it? Do you desire it to become great or maybe a leader among you shall be your servant it's not a call for greatness it's a call to it's slavery really it says and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all uh, it is 
It is all about servanthood. It's not about lordship. For even if the, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So the church must be led by men of passion who are compelled to the ministry. To do what? Well, our text says to the office of an overseer. To the office of an overseer. Having oversight of the church is no small task, but rather a sobering responsibility. Hebrews 13, uh, 17, I'm not going to read there, but it warns leaders that they must give an account to God for how faithfully they led the congregation. While James adds that because they teach, they face even a stricter judgment. James chapter 3, verse 1. So an overseer is a translation of the Greek word episkopos, the term rendered as bishop from, in a King James, you probably read that, but that's the, the word for overseer. It's not a, a separation, because in our days, bishop has been encumbered with much ecclesiastical trapping. In the New Testament, however, the term bishop or overseer referred to the same role as a pastor or elder. So those terms, most scholars agree that they are interchangeable. A pastor is an overseer who is also an elder. How these words relate together. An overseer refers to the function of giving oversight to the church. An elder refers to the life stage or experience and his commiserate status in the community. He's a respectable person among the community. And then the shepherd or a pastor is a metaphor for the personal care for the members of the church. Uh, some have suggested that this word episcopos derives its sense from the city administrator or inspector or financial man manager in the Greek culture. In its New Testament usage, however, it more closely parallels to that of the Essene Jews that lived in the Qumran community. Remember where the, the caves were, they found the Dead Sea Scrolls? So there was this community of Jews, and some even claimed that they were related to John the Baptist, um, and they had a very similar um, structure in, in, in their religion. So the overseers among the Essenes preached, they taught, they presided, they exercised care and authority, and enforced discipline. So it wasn't purely an administrative work, it also entailed the teaching aspect of it. So those functions more closely mirror that of the New Testament overseer that, than the more narrow use of the term in the Greek culture. So what are the responsibilities of an overseer? And I just list them here. You can read the, the passages. One, they are to rule um, or to preside over the church. Uh, they are to preach and teach. They are to pray for the sick. James talks about that. They are to care for the church, as we just read in 1 Peter 5. They're to be examples for others to follow, according to Peter as well, and to set church policy. Uh, Acts chapter 15 says that the apostles got together with the elders in the church of Jerusalem to decide how we're going to do church. 
Um, are we going to require of the Gentiles to follow the law? So they discussed all this, this church policy. And to ordain other leaders. Uh, it says that the elders in the congregation of Ephesus in chapter 4, we're going to see that later, um, that they were the ones responsible for that examination of new or potential elders. All right, so that concludes our a compelling office. Now, the other part, and it says here that it is a fine work his de- he desires to do. It's a fine work. And I titled here as an, ex- an excellent and yet arduous office. It is an excellent and yet arduous office. It says in our text that it is a fine work. The ministry is a fine, uh, is the word callous in Greek, which is a, a word that is used for good, something good, something noble or honorable or excellent. It, it is a high quality work. It's a, it's a most worthy and glorious calling as godly men have always recognized. The 14th century English reformer John Wycliffe, we studied him a little bit in the first hour, um, I mean, he wrote about this calling. He says, The highest service that man may attain to, to on earth is to preach the word of God. This service falls peculiarly to priests and therefore more straightly demands it of them. And for this cause, Jesus Christ left other works and occupied himself mostly in preaching. And thus did his apostles, and for this God loved them. The church, however, is honored most by the preaching of God's word, and hence this is the best service that priests may hander into the, uh, unto God. And thus, if our bishops preach not their own persons and hinder true priests from preaching, they are in the sins of the bishops who killed the Lord Jesus. And he's talking about religious leaders, right? Another um, 17th century, um, this, this guy's from 17th century American Puritan, Cotton Mather. He agreed, he says, the office of the Christian ministry, highly un- rightly understood, is the most honorable and important than any man in the world can ever sustain. You'll be one of wonders and employments of eternity to consider the reasons why the wisdom and goodness of God assigned this office to imperfect and guilty man. It doesn't elevate us. It elevates the God who has set them apart. The great design and intention of the office of a Christian preacher are to restore the throne and the dominion of God in the souls of man. I really like that. Are to restore the throne and the dominion of God in the souls of man. To to display in the most lively colors to proclaim in the clearest language the wonderful perfections, offices, and the grace of the Son of God, and to attract the souls of man into a state of everlasting friendship with him. It is a work with an angel might wish for. It is an honor to his character. Yea, an office which every angel in heaven might covet to be employed in for a thousand years to come. In such, it is such an honorable, important, and useful office that if a man be put into it by God and made it faithful and successful through life, he may look down 
with disdain upon a crown and shed a tear of pity on the brightness of monarch on earth. Um, the work of preaching and leading the church, which our Lord purchased with his blood, is the highest and the greatest and most glorious calling to anyone can ever be called to. Now, I want to um, make sure that you understand that even though it is something honorable and it's worth desiring for, it is not easy. Those looking for an easy time will not find that in the ministry. I'm not complaining about it. I, I think it is a great, a great work that I enjoy thoroughly, but it is very hard. I remember uh, when I you know, started pursuing ministry, I was a pharmacist, and it was a great disappointment for my dad. Um, and I, I didn't move forward until I had his blessing, but um, there was a time where he basically cursed me. He said, you know, it doesn't matter. You're going to be the best person. You're going to take care of them, and they're going to stab in your back. You're going to have financial difficulties, and boy, did he lay the whole picture for me, and I thought, dad, that's harsh, but when I was in seminary, I realized, oh, Check the box, heard it, people attacking me, people <laughs> biting me. <laughs> it is a hard work. The ministry is work, is demanding, is a lifelong task. Paul commanded Timothy to do the work of an evangelist. He reminded the Thessalonians to appreciate those who diligently labor. That word labor is to work to the point of exhaustion. So appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction. 1 Thessalonians 5.12. To the Colossians, he said, We proclaim him who is we there, Paul the apostle, and um, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power which mightily works within me. It is a work that, you know, any work is impossible to be done apart from the Lord. But this one in particular... The ministry is no nine-to-five occupation that one can walk away from and forget each evening. Uh, Paul says that the concern for the churches and for the people, it goes with you to bed. <laughs> um, and the concern, you get a phone call in the middle of the night, and you got to answer it. Oh, sorry, it's past five o'clock, I'm done. That's not at all. The work of the ministry is such a serious undertaking that no man may enter it based solely on his own desire. Anyone who would lead the church must be set apart to that responsibility by the church when it clearly recognized his giftedness, his virtue, and service by the standards given in this passage. The sign that this recognition had occurred 
and a man had been set apart for the ministry in the early church was the laying of hands. So let's read here in four, uh, chapter 4, verse 14. Um, Paul is speaking, of Timothy, speaking to Timothy here specifically, and he says, Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through the prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery, by the elders. The presbytery was basically the elders. So that laying of hands, the symbolism comes from the Old Testament, actually, where the one offering a sacrifice identified with it by laying his hands on it. So remember when the, the, the people went to, to confess their sins and they had to make a sacrifice, they would put their hands on the lamb and, and confess their sins, basically representing them. That lamb would be representing them. So by laying of hands on a candidate for the ministry, church leaders showed their unity and solidarity with him. They also gave him their commendation, support, and affirmation. So Paul strongly cautioned Timothy in chapter 4, verse 25, uh, verse 22, he says, do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily, thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. Those who ordain an unworthy man to the ministry share the responsibility for his sin. The early church took ordination very seriously. In Acts 13, 2 and 14, 23, we read that prayer and fasting accompanied, this, accompanied the setting apart of men for the ministry. Remember when Paul and Barnabas were sent in the church of Antioch? The elders got together and they fasted and prayed for the commissioning of those men. It was done in the early years by the apostles and later by the elders of each congregation. So spiritual oversight begins with this um, divine calling of this to this office. Men driven by an inner passion actively seek to ser serve the church. The congregation either affirms or rejects that calling based on how the man's life measures up to the standards the Holy Spirit has delineated for his church. And that leads us, what are those requirements? An office with essential requirements. Let's look at verse 2. An overseer then must be above reproach. And that's what we're going to stop there. Those lists and many others like them contain qualities every church overseer should possess. But pastoring God's people demands far more because the issue is not just leadership, but moral and a spiritual example. For those that are um, familiar with um, the, the verse for Awana, um, what is it, First Timothy 4, 12? Where Paul says, let no, yeah, let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, in conduct, in love, and faith, and purity, show yourself to be an example to those who believe. Timothy, you were an elder. 
You ought to be an example in all these areas here in your life. Being above reproach. Summing up the realm of requirement, Paul demands that an overseer in the church of Jesus Christ must be above reproach. The Greek uh, particle that uses, that our translation translates as must, emphasizes that this is an absolute necessity. A life without blame is the overarching requirement for leadership in the church. And we're going to study in the coming weeks more detailed what does it mean to be above reproach. Because Paul is going to delineate, well, it means that he is going to be a one-woman man. It's going to, it means that he's temperate, he's prudent, he's respectable, he's hospitable, able to teach, and all of these other requirements. Uh, I really appreciate the way that Richard Baxter, another Puritan um, in England in the 17th century, um, gives this warning, which makes me shiver every time that I read it. He says, Take heed to yourselves, lest your example contradict your doctrine, and lest you lay such stumbling blocks before the blind, as it may be an occasion of their ruin, lest you unsay with your lives what you say with your tongues. And be the greatest hinderers of the success of your own labors. One proud, swirly, lordly word, one leadless contention, one covetous action may cut the throat of many a sermon and blast the fruit of all that have been doing, that you have been doing. Take heed to yourself, lest you live in those sins which you preach against in others, unless you be guilty of that which daily, you daily condemn. Will you make it your work to magnify God, and when you have done, dishonor him as much as others? Will you proclaim Christ's governing power and yet condemn it and rebel yourselves? Will you preach his laws and willfully break, willfully break them? If sin be evil... Why do you live in it? If it be not, why do you dissuade men from it? If it be dangerous, how dare you venture on it? If it be not, why do you tell men so? If God's threatening be true, why do you fear them where you do not fear them? If they be false, why do you needlessly trouble men with them and put them into such frights without a cause? Do you know the judgment of God that they who commit such things are worthy of death, yet you, yet you will do them? Thou that teaches another teaches not thyself. Thou that sayest a man should not commit adultery, be drunk or covetous or art such thyself. Thou that makes thy boast of the law through breaking the law dishonors thou, thou God. What? Shall the same tongue speak evil that it speaks against evil? Shall those lips censure and slander and back by your neighbor that cry down these and the like these things in others? Take heed to yourselves, lest you cry down sin, and yet do not overcome it. Lest while you seek to bring it down on others, you bow to it and become its slaves yourselves, 
For of whom a man is overcome, of the same he is brought into bondage. To whom ye yield yourselves, servants to obey, he servants, yeah, ye are to whom ye obey, whether seen unto death or of obedience of unto righteousness. O brethren, it is easier to chide at sin than to overcome it. End of quote. What a frightful um, paragraph. The expression uh, above reproach means not able to be held. You just picture a mug and the, the thing that you hold the mug, the little uh, the handle. So a person that is above reproach doesn't have any handle for you to grasp into. The man who is above reproach cannot be arrested or held as if he were a criminal. There is nothing for which to accuse him. In Titus chapter 1, verse 6, the same idea of being above reproach is conveyed, but with a different term, um, unreprovable. That, that's the one that is used there. The present participle that this person be, the verb to be among, uh, above reproach, indicates that it is a present state of being above reproach. Um, it, it does not mean that a person who was above reproach when he was called to ministry and is no longer above reproach should be considered. It is a present tense. He was qualified, he remains qualified, and he continues qualified until the Lord calls him home. Obviously, it does not mean that he has not committed sins in his life. It does not mean that his life has not been marred by some obvious sinful defect in character which would preclude him setting the highest standard for godly conduct. But he must be a model for the congregation to follow. He also must not give the enemies of the church a reason to attack his reputation. Can you imagine what it would be like for a community that knows? Uh, I, I remember hearing horror stories of um, people that were angry when they talked to others. And, and at the church, they were preaching against it. What a, a dreadful thing to live in an inconsistent life. Pastor must take the great care to remain above reproach for several reasons. First, there are special targets of Satan, and he will assault them with more severe temptations than others. Those in the front lines of the spiritual battle will bear the weight of satanic opposition. So pray for us that the Lord will, will keep us from temptation. Second, their fall has a greater potential for harm. Satan knows that when a shepherd falls, the effect on the sheep is devastating. And third, leaders' greater knowledge of the truth and accountability to live it brings greater chastening when they sin. Fourth, elder sins are more hypocritical than others because they preach against the very sins they commit. So leaders need an abundance of God's grace and power because of their greater responsibility and visibility. To protect themselves, leaders must spend in-depth time in the study of God's word. 
As 1 Timothy 4, 6, Paul exhorts Timothy to constantly be nourished on the words of the faith, i.e. scripture, and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. The psalmist wrote, wrote Psalm 119, 11, Your word have I treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. So a leader must continuously expose his life to the light of the word of God. He must also be a man of prayer and accountable to others in a spiritual fellowship. Our elders have been uh, reading the book, Dangerous Calling, which warns us of the pitfalls of, of ministry and the dangers that are attached to it. So what is your responsibility as a church with all of this? Well, the church is called to be committed to maintaining leadership that is godly. And the church is responsible to measure man by the standard of being above reproach. Dr. MacArthur says that all too common practice today is to forgive a leader who sins and immediately restore him to his ministry. And, And it it's not that we're being merciless. That, that's not the point here. The church, like God, must not hesitate to forgive those who truly repent. We should be ready to forgive anyone who asks for forgiveness. But to immediately restore them to the ministry, says Dr. MacArthur, however, lowers the standard that God expects leaders to follow. And since leaders serves as the pattern of holiness and virtue for the congregation, the standard for the entire church is lowered. Do you see the danger in that? In chapter 3, verses 2 and 7 through 7, Paul lists four areas in which a man aspiring to church leadership might be evaluated as to whether he is above reproach. And these have to do with his moral character, his home life, his spiritual maturity, maturity, and public reputation, which we will return to this in a couple of weeks. I'm going to leave you hanging here. In conclusion, in the end, no one will fulfill these qualifications perfectly, but the overall picture of their lives will be consistent of this. doesn't mean that they never fail. Each of us has numerous sins to confess daily. However, elders ought to live lives worth imitating, lives that reflect the character of Christ. They need to know the word, teach the word, and obey the word so that others in the church will be instructed and spurred spurred on to greater faithfulness. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we come before you with... Um, heavy hearts. Lord, we all have seen failures around us. Um, We've seen on the media, we've seen in our own churches, and our heart is grieved. And I do pray that you would give us a heart and desire to be an encouragement to those in leadership, uh, to keep them accountable, to keep them encouraged and keep them in our prayers. Lord, and as a church, we are responsible to follow the example. And I do pray, Father, that we would emulate these godly traits that we observe in those in leadership over us. 
pray that you would continue to bless our fellowship with you through communion. In the holy name of Jesus Christ, amen.